Welcome, everybody. Uh, thank you all for joining us for this very special episode of the Stem Cell Podcast, Pathway to the Clinic with Blue Rock Therapeutics. I'm Dr. Dalon James. This is Dr. Arun Sharma, and we are the hosts of the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge in stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. We're here at Blue Rock headquarters in Alexandria Center for Life Science uh, tonight, where I saw a seaplane take off in the East River. I lived in New York my whole life. I knew they were in the air, but I didn't know they landed right there, which is pretty amazing. Uh, so I'm already good for the night, but hopefully we can satisfy you guys as well. Um, as I said, we're in front of a live audience here in New York to discuss Bemdanaprocel. Oh my God, I screwed it up right out of the gate. Bemdanaprocel. Sue me. Uh, a stem cell-derived investigational cell therapy designed to replace the dopamine-producing neurons that are lost in Parkinson's disease. The results from a phase one clinical trial were released back in August, and I think we were all, I think the world, it was very impressed, not only with the safety profile, but some really encouraging early results about efficacy. Um, and really, for me, just the, the culmination of all these years of promise finally um, coming to fruition. So it was very gratifying. Um, we're going to talk about that. Uh, we have the team here, some of the team involved uh, with the work here to chat with, about it. And uh, without further ado, I'm going to introduce our guest now, Dr. Stefan Irian, who's the Chief Scientific Officer at Blue Rock Therapeutics. Stefan leads the research organization at Blue Rock Therapeutics since joining Blue Rock in 2017. Stefan has taken on a number of roles in support of Blue Rock scientific goals developing CNS strategy, advancing the DA01 program through the IND clearance, advancing multiple neurology pipeline candidates to the next stage of development, building and expanding a cross-site and cross-functional research team. Prior to Blue Rock, Stefan was part of a leadership team at Memorial Sloan Kettering that developed MSK DA01, the current lead program at Blue Rock. Stefan worked as a senior scientist at Iperion, developing IPSCs prior to joining MSK. Uh, Stefan received his MD from the University of Tübingen uh, and did postdoctoral fellowship work at both Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York and University Health Network in Toronto. Welcome to the show, Dr. Stefan Irion, please. And of course, we also have Dr. Vivian Tabar. Chair of the Department of Neurosurgery at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Dr. Tabar is a founding investigator at Blue Rock Therapeutics, a neurosurgeon and professor at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York, and holds a joint appointment at Weill Cornell Medical College in the Departments of Neurosurgery and Neuroscience. Dr. Tabar serves as a co-principal investigator of a large consortium grant aiming at the development of a clinical trial for grafting human embryonic stem cell-derived dopamine neurons in Parkinson's patients in this focus, major efforts on development of human ES-derived oligodendrocytes for brain radiation damage. She's also one of the two neurosurgeons that participated in the phase one trial of bemdanaprosol. 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 The worst. She received clinical training at the University of Massachusetts. I'm not even drinking, by the way. Everybody else on this panel is drinking. Not right. It's not fair. She received clinical training at the University of Massachusetts and at Memorial Sloan Kettering Research Training at the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke at the NIH. Now, to be clear, Dr. Tabar is speaking with us here in her role as a physician scientist who has guided the work. Um, and while she does have a financial interest with Blue Rock, she is not speaking on behalf of Blue Rock and is not really going to be speaking about Blue Rock Pipeline at all. She's here to talk about her work and her role in this pivotal step forward. 
Uh, welcome, please, Dr. Vivian Kabat. All right, so let's dive right into it. We'll start off with an easy question for you, Stefan. Uh, you know, everybody here in this audience knows what Blue Rock is all about, but for our listeners at home or in cell culture hoods around the world, uh, could you describe in your own words what Blue Rock Therapeutics is, how it came to be, and maybe what sets it apart in the stem cell field? Yeah, yeah, of course. So uh, in a nutshell, we are a regenerative cell therapy company that harnesses the power of pluripotent stem cells, which this audience and the stem cell podcast audience is, is well aware of, uh, to bring new therapies and new hopes to patients uh, suffering um, intreatable and intractable diseases today. Um, we were founded uh, late 2016. It was really, a, we refer to it as a moonshot effort. We raised one of the largest Series A funding rounds uh, invested by, by Leaps, the venture arm of Bayer Pharmaceuticals uh, and Versant Ventures, uh, raised $250 million, which is a lot of money, uh, and at the time was even more money, uh, to start this, this, this moonshot approach to really build a platform company around pluripotent stem cells. So not just saying, I can treat diabetes, um, and you built a company around that, but really thinking, what are the how can we best leverage this potential and build a whole company around it? So we make this investment in, in understanding and how we grow and expand pluripotent stem cells, how we might genetically engineer them to then have multiple therapies uh, that we can, they can use to treat patients. So the founding uh, programs that came in was a program by, by Gordon Kellen, Mike Laflamme up in Toronto, how to make uh, beating cardiomyocytes for patients that have suffered heart attacks. I see you high-fiving that, Arun, yeah. Um, <laughs> And obviously the program that I was involved here with, uh, with Vivian and uh, Lorenz and, and Mark Tomishima, who's in the audience, uh, to bring dopaminergic neurons to patients that suffer uh, from Parkinson's disease. Um, so that was the early days. Uh, we, we started uh, the programs here in, in New York and Toronto and later Cambridge. And then um, about two, three years later, we were acquired by um, Bayer Pharmaceuticals, all, all right. And today we're operating as, as a wholly owned independently operating subsidiary of, of Bayer Pharmaceuticals. So yeah, you mentioned it's Parkinson's disease. I mean, that's what we're talking about uh, tonight in terms of the drug and, and, and the innovation here. Um, but the disease is what uh, this whole conversation is about. That's the impetus, starting with you, Dr. Tabar. I mean, notwithstanding Lorenz's grace on poop duty with the bull, what, what brought you to your study this, I mean, monumental lift, the ambition it took to go after a disease of such scope and with such a challenge, why did you jump on board with that ambitious challenge? Yeah, good question. I sometimes wonder, except in, the, in this last year, I stopped wondering because we're just so incredibly excited that it came to be and that it was successful, even though we're still in early stages. Look, I, I, I loved the brain from the beginning. I became a neurosurgeon because back then, no offense to any neurologists in the audience, I felt that we didn't have too much to offer to patients with devastating disease. So I figured, okay, maybe we can remove some tumors, take out some blood, some, you know, brain trauma. Um, so that's what drove me in sort of my professional career. But... Um, you know, in, in, in general, in science, it's really, honestly, all about vision and perseverance. And that's what I learned in the last 20 years. 
I went to NIH uh, to Ron Mackay's lab because I heard him talk about stem cells in the brain, which was not what our medical school books taught us. And I just got, you know, in my medical school application, I started with this sentence that I never forgot, which is, once your brain is stretched by a new idea, it never regains its original dimensions. And that really describes the trajectory. So in the beginning, we were looking at rats, at trying to scale up um, fetal progenitors. And that was, you know, the, the first experiment with Lawrence and May. And then we just happened to be a really good team where I was already, even when watching rats, I was already thinking how that would play out in a person's brain. And it sounded truly wild, really. And he, of course, came to it with an, a true scientist's mind, but also with, you know, what otherwise you would call stubbornness, but uh, what do we like to call it? Perseverance of that <laughs> thing, you know, making it happen. And then it was a series of good, uh, good decisions. One of them is hiring Stefan as our project manager. Um, and the other really was finding ourselves in a cancer hospital that was willing to let us explore the science. And I can't say enough for all of you who mentor young people, who direct labs, anything, your homes, that you should always listen to exciting ideas and see if, you, if there isn't something there that you can push through. Uh, you know, luck favors the prepared mind. So there's a mix of being prepared and thoughtful and being at the right place, right time, right people. You mentioned uh, Stefan. Stefan, to you, I mean, you were at Iperion working on iPSCs, uh, not far from, from this, but not exactly right in that wheelhouse. What brought you to, to Parkinson's? And also, as a follow-up for maybe both of you, what do you think were the most instrumental uh, steps that, that were critical to, to reaching this, this point? Just one. I mean, we're going to talk about so much in this conversation, but if you could think of one critical uh, watershed. Yeah, for me, it was, um, you know, I had fallen in love with, with the stem cell biology uh, through my postdoctoral training um, altogether. And so I, in my, my first industry job was with this company, Iperion, um, didn't carry my last name in it, uh, but, but close, um, <laughs> that, that, you know, we were trying to really, for the first time, leverage iPS cells that just sort of became something uh, to use them for, for drug discovery. Uh, and that was, was quite exciting. Uh, and for a variety of reasons, uh, moved to New York, and um, I knew that Lorenz was there, and uh, you know I, I knew him through the stem cell field as, as one of the leading scientists and smartest guys I knew. Um, and um, he, I approached him and said, like, you know, uh, well, I'm in New York, I love the science, I want to do something uh, here, and I was really trying to look, can we? Can we find something that is is not an academic faculty job, but something different? Um, and he said, "Well, as luck may have it, I just applied for this grant, uh, and and it looks like we're going to get it um, to, to develop a cell therapy for Parkinson's disease." And I, I mean, I, he may have not finished the sentence. I said, "I'll take that job." Um, <laughs> and I remember Vivian was very concerned that it may be boring in the beginning, um, and. Um, you know, I, I mean, I think I, I, for me, it was the vision. I said, like, there's, there's absolutely fantastic science behind it that I believe, and it's a huge unmet clinical need. And there's precedence in the literature that a cell therapy for Parkinson's should work. And I put all these pieces together, and I said, that, that's what I want to do. 
it's an incredible journey for the both of you, for, for all of us, really. It's, it's a little bit of luck, but I think mostly hard work. Um, and I think we're all so fortunate to be in the midst of this stem cell revolution. I think we can accurately call it that. That's enabling all of these discoveries and these translational advances. So, you know, before we actually dive into the trial results, I, I'd like both of you to reflect on the, the quote, need for a biotech company like Blue Rock in facilitating a complex trial like this. I mean, in contrast, there are clinical trials that are start to finish conducted entirely at academic centers, right? So maybe it's, you know, a bit of a naive question, but what was it about this therapy, this approach that necessitated Blue Rock to be involved in, in this trial as such a critical partner? Um, I mean, it might be obvious to everybody here in this audience, but for our listeners at home who don't necessarily think about cell therapy day and night, like you all do, um, why do you need a company like Blue Rock for this clinical trial to happen? You know, as you said, uh, you can run a phase one clinical trial uh, in an academic center. Um, I think what, what sets us apart here in a, in a biotech company is really this, this mission to develop this therapy for patients in need for everybody that, that needs to, to take it, right? So from the very get-go, we're focused not just on, we believe already in, in the phase one trial, but it's really about the next thing, right? So we're, we're investing in scaling up manufacturing. How do, we, how do we take this to all the patients in need, not just the 12 patients that we involve in the phase one trial, right? Um, we, you know, you can throw money at things and make them go faster and in parallel. And it's incredibly difficult in academia to do that, right? When we at Sloan were thinking about how do we take this to the next level, like we're thinking, well, maybe there's a, an NIH grant or, but we're talking, you know, and this may sound ridiculous, but, but small million dollar things. While at a biotech, we were able to uh, really take a lot more to make things go faster. And I think one of the examples is our enrollment was completed within a year, uh, which most people would think uh, is, is really difficult in a, in a, in a you know, Vivian can speak to this, a, a complicated surgery, right? Um, that that takes, some, takes some time and preparation. So to get the 12 patients within a year was the effort of not just being in one site, but really pushing to go to another surgical site, opening up the trial in, in Canada, uh, and all these things, I think that was what we brought uh, to the development of, of Bemdaneprocell, by the way, how we say it. <laughs> Got that. Um, all right. Uh, let's talk about the results a little bit. Um, I mentioned them briefly, uh, but you guys can elaborate. The bottom line being that it wasn't just the safety, which is uh, the primary endpoint, but there were some efficacy results. And as I said, you guys could elaborate on it. But I want to try and get uh, both your perspectives, starting with you, Dr. Tabar, you know, the neurosurgeon perspective, the patient being the priority. What does what this success enable for that patient, both like on a macro level in terms of their life, but also just logistically moving on from this trial and the success? What does it enable you to do? And the next question to ask in terms of efficacy and scale or whatever that may be. So yeah, so I have to add to what Stefan that said, just said that a lot of very good ideas um, go to rest in the valley of death before they reach the clinic. So um, founding and finding Blue Rock was absolutely critical to this idea of becoming reality. I remember 
I don't know how many years ago, I wrote a little something in the literature that says stem cells hype or hope. And so stem cells went through this long period of wondering, you know, are they a smart cell? You just put them somewhere and they know what to do versus are they, are they a cell that needs a lot of help, a lot of direction, and then putting it in the right place. And, you know, as we moved on with the science, it just starts dawning on you that, hello, there's going to be a patient here, you're going to put this in their brains, and you've got to do it right. So everything matters. Every step of the way matters. You needed a, an industry sponsor to support the trials, which the first time I looked at what the budget might look like, it was stunning. You know, this is an intervention that requires us to do surgery on both sides of the brain, pass a cannula three times on each side, put in a total of 18 cell deposits. We, you know, went really overboard with emphasizing the safety. We did this in an MRI-equipped operating room. We didn't leave anything to chance. One of my partners in crime, in addition to Lawrence, is Kenny Yu, sitting back there, who was this, you know, young, uh, smart neurosurgeon who was sort of willing and all gung-ho planning the trajectories while I was worried about if the cells are going to be okay, with Mark Tomishima bringing them back and forth from the facility with his little igloo. You know, there's a lot of, lot of detail, and you can fail on the detail. I mean, these cells that uh, Lorenz made could be fantastic, but if we don't get them in the patient's brain at the right place in good condition, they wouldn't work, and the trial could fail. So there, it was all about attention to detail and about a really genuinely great team who really believed that this could happen. So that's for one. From the patient's perspective, I will remind this audience that we got FDA clearance maybe, what was it, 10 days before the EUA for COVID vaccine came. I, I'm not making this up, but I was putting a turkey in the oven and I looked at my phone and there was a comment, an email from the IND office at MSK saying the FDA has a question, can you respond? When does that happen over Thanksgiving? And the person who was telling me this said, has been doing this for 20 years, has never seen that. The FDA goes home for a long time around Thanksgiving. So there, there was an, an emergency in the country, there was a pandemic, and here we are wanting to cure Parkinson's at the same time. So we got this clearance, and then it was like, what do we do now? We got the clearance, but you know, we're in New York City, the second center of the pandemic. The, the most impressive thing about all this to me was the enthusiasm of the patients who all came in equipped with a preprint from Cell Stem Cell that had our preclinical data, and with links to webinars that Lawrence had done, or I had done, or somebody else had done, or Stefan, about this. And they were all in. Lorac supported them to be in the city for 28 days during the pandemic to have the intervention. And they were truly inspiring. I have a whole shelf of things they sent me, angels, t-shirts with their trial numbers, etc. And, you know, they, those patients knew what they were getting into, and they looked me in the eye and said, yeah, I'm willing to do this, even if I don't benefit. This is so exciting. We've been waiting for it. It was genuinely a, you know, kind of feed-forward, positive feedback loop to get this done. And, yeah, we did one patient a month, which is the maximum we could have done by our protocol in the middle of a pandemic. And that took, I know it's 
cliche to say, took a village. It took a town, a city of people to actually make it happen. But most importantly, it took the patient's trust in the science at a time when we were challenging the science of the vaccines, right? Well, you said uh, the patients were inspiring. I think you inspired the patients. I think that's the, the therapy is really, I mean, the hope and the promise is just outside. Stefan, to you, I mean, for Blue Rock, a lot of attention. The world's looking at this therapy. It's like this is like the first big scale, not the first, but the first of this scale. Um, what does it mean uh, going, moving on from here for Blue Rock? Right? Can you just talk about that a bit? Yeah, and it is absolutely critical for us and, and the whole community uh, that these, these trials of, of truly uh, innovative cell therapies succeed, right? So we are, we're looking equally around us um, where, where others are in, in, this, in, in this moment, in other therapies, but also in the Parkinson's field. For us in particular, of course, this was one of the, the founding promises, one of the, the moonshots that we wanted to take is, is to restore and re-innovate the brain that has suffered from Parkinson's disease. And I think what we're seeing today in our early trials is, is exactly that. It's really tantalizing. We, I, we, we see engraftment, and we talk about this later, uh, of the cells. And this is what we came for. So this proof of concept, this human proof of concept, uh, is so critical for our success because it's going to help us rally the community behind other cell therapies that have a very similar principle. Um, and it allows us, uh, you know, our, our funder bear, to, to believe in what we do and continue funding this work uh, to bring it not just to Parkinson's, uh, but other therapies, but importantly, also like we're planning to do, to move this Parkinson's trial, uh, trial beyond a clinical trial to an actual therapy. So actually, let's talk a little bit more about exactly that, shifting away from Parkinson's for just a little bit. You mentioned some of those other therapies that are, you know, in development, potentially. Um, you know, these are mostly preclinical studies at the moment, but, you know, they're for ne other neurodegenerative diseases and other options, other cell options in terms of cell types, such as microglia, oligodendrocytes. Um, but you also have preclinical studies, and I was just looking at the, the website for Blue Rock, so um, there's preclinical studies going on in ophthalmology, immunology, and in my favorite field, cardiology as well, right? Um, and I know you can't say a lot about these preclinical studies, but could you talk just about these other areas of interest that Blue Rock has and what excites you in terms of these therapeutic approaches? You know, I think the, the next big thing for us is, is, is our program in ophthalmology that we have in a collaboration with, with Opsis Therapeutics. Um, um, there, we're trying to make photoreceptors and restore vision in patients that have lost it to genetic causes of blindness. And for me, that is fascinating. If we can bring even uh, light, dark reception back to patients that, that are blind, that, that's fantastic. I personally work and run with, with people with blindness and, and just to help them is, is personally very motivating for me. Um, so that, that's, that's exciting that, that, that science speaks to me. It's very similar to what we see in Parkinson's where we can you know, bring new photoreceptors uh, to those that have died. And this is particularly interesting because it goes beyond a certain genetic mutation. It has the potential to treat all genetic causes of blindness or at least many of them. Uh, so that's exciting. And the next one for me here internally at Blue Rock, uh, the, our second program, the, the original moonshot was this, this idea to remuscularize the heart, you know, a completely different challenge. We have to make, you know, billions of cells to restore heart function, right? To engraft them, they have to couple electromechanically so they didn't cause arrhythmias. Um, this is a, a completely different challenge that we've seen uh, we, than we have seen with Parkinson's. But the fundamental principle to bring 
cells back and, re and treat the, the disease that way is the same, right? In, in all other therapies rely on treating what's left uh, and making that work better or differently. Here, we're actually bringing fresh new cells back. Uh, so that's part of our pipeline in, in, on, the, on the cardiac side. Um, and then uh, our earlier research programs around microglia, you know, absolutely fascinating cell. Um, you can riddle off uh, numerous indications where, where microglia play a role, uh, neurodegeneration, um, some rare genetic causes. Um, we've talked about uh, some preclinical work we've done in lysosomal storage disorders where typically people use bone marrow transplantation um, to, um, to, to bring the, the, the enzymatic function back and we're able to show that with, in these preclinical models we can do this with microglia, really overcoming one of the hurdles to bring this enzyme into the brain very early on before uh, neurons die in, 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 in patients. Um, so, uh, the, these are some of the programs we're, we're pushing forward, and the team uh, here in New York is, is mostly of our neuroscience research, research is working on. Um, and pretty exciting, pretty exciting times. Yeah, I mean, the most exciting thing to me, I think, uniquely in science, where there's so many haters, I feel like everyone's rooting for you. I mean, everybody wants this to succeed. And Dr. Tavar, you, you said it, Valley of Death, you know, you needed this to be a success. Stefan, you said it, it was really critical. Uh, to inspire confidence, both from funding agencies, but also everyone else, right? Um, Dr. Tabar, so given that, and we alluded also to the, there's a lot of other trials going on, right? And I think everybody's rooting for them to succeed, too. Uh, we're all on the same team, right? On some level. Uh, but with that in mind, and with this success being kind of like, I, I don't want to say unleashing everybody, but it's a real, it's real. And I think everyone can use it to convince whoever is the you know, gatekeeper that, that they should be moving forward with whatever the endeavor is. So with that in mind, do you think that the, these next 10 years is going to be like a bonanza or a true breakthrough? Or do you think that with your experience and all the rigor that it takes that like we should temper our expectations and, and you know, revise our expectations to be a little bit more? Of a, of a long term kind of drip out of these big, big news stories? Well, it's a mix of both. And so uh, the success of this trial, and by that I mean the trial meeting these endpoints of safety and giving signals of efficacy, which is all you can ask of it right now at one year. We are already well ahead of what has been tried before with fetal tissue, for example, in Parkinson's disease. So that's truly, truly exciting. And uh, like you said, um, both of you earlier, I mean, this is going to be a decade of incredible advances. Um, I, I am extremely enthusiastic, but also very pragmatic. The brain is a very complex organ. I cannot speak for the heart. I think it's secondary to the heart. <laughs> but in terms of complexity, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> It's equally important, I take that back. But in terms of complexity, if you succeed in the brain and you get a signal, and you know, let's think about it, what is the signal? The signal means you have put in a fetal neuron and it has connected with your own synapses and is now part of you and trying to repair something that wasn't working well. I mean, I wouldn't be too unrealistic if I said from here on the sky is the limit. At the same time, that proof of concept is extremely important. 
for the patient, for the industry, for the physicians, the scientists, and I, I do believe it will inspire everybody. But we also tamper it with maintaining our rigor as scientists and our expectations should be really driven by the science and not by anything else. For example, we often talk about uh, making truly fetal uh, dopamine neurons in the dish and replacing them in a patient who is 70 or 75 years old. And, you know, we have to give that therapy time to function. And we, will, we have to, you know, continue our lifelong learning. And I'm very excited that there will be other trials, other cells, other groups, new ideas that will only serve to make the therapy better. One of the hardest things, I think, for our team, when we were still, all of us, Stefan, uh, Mark, Lawrence, myself, and many others, only in the academic space, we were already <laughs> sort of thinking, you know, uh, we had a hard time uh, locking down our product and stop thinking about making the protocol better and the differentiation better. And that's really... That's when you realize that you made that transition to go to clinic, and we kind of went into it kicking and screaming. But we already are thinking about how we can even be better. So, you know, you always need the pragmatism of the clinician, the excitement of the scientist, and of the patient. Yeah, it truly is a, a team effort, and we can talk more about that heart versus brain debate offline. Uh, I mean, my department chair is a neuroscientist, so I'm not there new you to go. that debate. You know, <laughs> to be fair, the heart, it's just a pump, okay? It's just a fortune, <laughs> pump. Fine, fine, fine. A very good one. <laughs> it's, it's a decent one. Yeah, it's decent. It only pumps like three billion times or something like that, right? Um, so I actually wanted to take a step back, and, and you... you highlighted this briefly already, but you know, I just wanted to do this again because I think this is so important. The most important members of this clinical trial team, can anybody guess who they are? It's, it's the patients. The patients are the most important members of the trial team. I mean, these are brave individuals affected by such a devastating disease and who underwent brain surgery, right, to actually receive this investigational stem cell therapy. And I mean, Dr. Tabar, this is what you do professionally every single day. Um, but for those of us like myself who don't do brain surgery every day, um, this procedure is daunting. It's, it's scary to think about. Can, can you reflect again on just the courage of these individuals and their families as well um, receiving this therapy? You know, because this is ultimately about them. You mentioned they had copies of cell stem cell coming that they're bringing with them to their, to their therapies. But I just want to emphasize the importance of these individuals who are the most critical member of the trial team. Yeah, that's really, you're right. In all of this, those are the most important um, elements of all that. You know, it, it, we often think of a physician as sort of a, a bit of an authority figure, someone we kind of go to to ask for advice, help for something very, very precious like our health. Uh, but actually, it's, it goes both ways. It's a reciprocal relationship. Um, for the patient to come fully trusting, to say, yes, you can, you can do this, you can drill a hole in my head on both sides and pass your needle a few times each. And some of them wanted me to count how many times we would do that and to put in those cells. Um, you know, it fills you with awe and, and a sense of responsibility that, you know, all of a sudden I felt... And I was a little bit 
you know, like two steps away from the science team who really wanted to know if the cells were alive and if the, you know, the mix was good and the temperature was good and all that was important. I'm like, oh my goodness, here I have this patient with their head open and I have these cells in there. Better be something good <laughs> for these patients. And then you had to go tell their families how it all went. And I, I will be honest in saying that the first few were, you know, like everything took longer than we expected and uh, because everybody wanted to do the best job they could. But really, those patients were very, very honestly, very, very supportive and inspiring and grateful. And I was quite moved. I mean, I'm, I'm, I deal with patients all the time. But these are patients who have been following the science and look forward to the future and who really never underestimate patients. They really know more than you think. They know that they are uh, participating in an experiment. A grand experiment, but an experiment nonetheless. And they go into this fully aware and very excited to be part of it. And many of them confirm that even if it does not work for them, because you know this was a trial that had two doses, and sometimes I had to answer questions about, well, which one is better? Should I wait until you get into the higher dose? Like, how do you answer that one? I'm not supposed to say anything. I don't know also. How would I say? Um, you know, I mean, there's a lot that, that goes into it. Uh, people ask intelligent questions and still give you their trust to do what's right. And I think I'm a physician, I'm used to this, but I can really say that the entire team, the lab members, the people who were bringing the cells to the operating room, Blue Rock, everybody was on board to do what's right for the patients. Right. I mean, I they're super... Uh courageous uh, in, in a very vulnerable position, but give yourselves and the team a lot of credit too. I mean, it takes a lot of courage, I think, because they look up to you and they believe, I think. You're a brain surgeon, for God's sakes. They believe that you know what you're doing. If, you know, not in life, at least in the, in the operating room. <laughs> yeah, it's most of the time. <laughs> so they believe, you can tell them anything. They're like, okay, doc. But um, you guys are in space, right? And like, let's talk about it. You, you had to kind of develop De novo techniques. This yeah. is stuff that's never been done. You know, I listened to your talk in NYSA, Perun listened to your talk in uh, San Diego a week ago. Like the details are really critical because I think they underscore how anything new requires a, a little bit. I don't want to call it like a DIY approach, but you had to create new tools and you had to, you know, can't try it out, right? This is the first patient has to be as good as you can possibly do, as you were alluding to. Can you elaborate on? Some of those, I think it's really interesting for the scientists and, and the physicians probably and surgeons, like what kind of, for example, type of like novel method, like the minute volumes, et cetera. Could you elaborate on some of these, the idiosyncrasies of, of the technical procedure that are, are more daunting, I think, than people realize? Yeah, well, the first one was, holy cow, Mark, is this one sterile? The, the cold, you know. The, so Mark had to bring the cells from the GMP facility where they were thawed. And they come in this box, you know, insulated box. And then, you know, I have to stop for a moment just to give a shout out for the nurses who helped us uh, make this happen. I couldn't have done it without them. Nurses, OR technicians, they were equally excited. But, you know, you have to comply with very, very, very specific rules 
you know, you in the lab you might assume that the the, the cold block or the ice bath, etc., are uh, okay to use, but not in the operating room. So you had to think out everything. I mean, uh, we trialed quite a few things right here in Lurock headquarters. How do we take out the cells? How do we suspend them? What has to be sterile? And oh my gosh, you do need pipettes. The OR has no pipettes. You know, all these little details, you couldn't really do it if you could not comply with very strict rules. And then when it came to injecting these cells, which you know worked great in the rat to give a few microliters, but now you've got to give a few microliters in a large, much larger brain. Well, uh, neurosurgery delicate and precise as it may be, does not really has not developed instruments that can deliver two or three or one microliter of cells. There was a leap of faith to be able. So we, we knew some of that ahead of time. We, we modified existing cannulas to diminish the uh, dead space because we're delivering very small amounts. And then, you know, I'll be honest in saying it was reassuring that Blorak said, oh, yeah, you can use up more cells. It's okay. And it's a lot of money, more cells. Um, but you had to do it right. We were so conscious that prior trials have failed, and even they could have failed on the detail. So, yeah, the cannula, the, you know, I, have, I like to show this picture of Kenny checking if the, there's a, dot, a, a drop of cells coming out of the cannula because it's such, such small amount. You could be injecting an air bubble, for all you know, in the patient's head, for example. And then your, your trial would fail, not because the cells aren't great, but because the technique was suboptimal. So we went, you know, all bells and whistles. We used MRIs. We planned our trajectories as if our life depended on them to optimize safety so we can see a signal if there was a signal, and thankfully there was. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, just seeing those results and seeing them presented in San Diego last week, it, that was the first time I had seen them. It was just, again, I'm a cardio, I'm, I'm cardiovascular research, I don't do neuroscience, but even to me, this, it was just so astounding and so just, as just somebody in the stem cell field, I was just so appreciative of what I was able to see. So thank you, and thank you to the team for all this incredible work. The heart is next. You know, you know that. Yeah, fingers <laughs> crossed. Absolutely. So you know, shifting gears a little bit, um, more kind of I guess big picture. It's uh, it's an interesting time in biomedical research, and you know, especially when it comes to the trainee side of it. I I was a trainee not too long ago, so I, I feel like this is a really important question to ask. It's um, you know, in academia, a lot of folks are shifting towards biotech. Uh, there's great opportunities in biotech, great opportunities at Blue Rock, for example. Uh, I'm, I'm a brand new PI, so it's it's tough to hire good postdocs a lot of times. You know, a lot of folks are going straight to industry, which is great, which is a good thing. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. Um, but, you know, I, I just wanted to ask a question about career development. What is Blue Rock doing to facilitate the development of junior scientists? Because this is a, a career path that wasn't necessarily available 10 years ago. So, Stefan, what is Blue Rock doing in this regard? Yeah. You know, I, you know, I think uh, there's something for everybody, right? Like for some people, I, when I talk to them, I would recommend they stay in academia, right? There's, uh, this, is, this, is, this job here is, is not for everybody, right? I think what we can offer for people, it's, it's working on, on, a, in a, on a much larger common goal. You wouldn't find yourself... Uh, as a postdoc, running your own project, doing everything soup to nuts, right? So we train people um, 
and help people to develop skills, how to work in a, in a mixed environment of, of different skills and leveraging them really. And I think that's where the power comes in, how you can move things forward, right? By, by not collaborating with somebody that doesn't want to, you're actually collaborating with somebody that works in the same company and follows the same goal as you have. So here, that's, that's a skill that, that we teach, right? Um, a lot of people, um, when they come out of their postdoc or uh, as a student, they don't have any experience how to manage a person, right? How to, how to motivate a person that works for you. Um, so we, we, we put an effort into uh, training our next generation of managers and leaders. Um, internally, we have, um, you know, maybe cliche, we have two programs. We have a blue rock star leader program. Uh, and a leader plus program, the sequential programs that we enroll uh, people. And we work with uh, outside firms as well to provide additional training. How, how do you, um, uh, you know, how to manage people? How do you manage projects? Um, so I think you get an exposure to a, to a broader facet of, of skills um, than, you, than you get in an in, in academic setting. So yeah, let's talk about that in terms of the growth, right? Building the company and the young talent you bring in and and how this uh, result impacts the bigger picture. I mean, this, as you said, got a whole constellation of targets. Um, what's like your best case scenario in your mind's eye that how this fits in the, the Bemdana Pro Cell? Did I do it? Did I do it? Uh, nearly. Uh, how that fits in, how this impact result, like where does it fit into your mind's eye? Best case scenario in, in terms of growth of, of Blue Rock, and not just the company, but about the, these therapies. Like, what's your best case? Yeah, this this goes all the way to commercialization. That's the best case. That's the vision for me. This this is now no longer a question of like, you know, do we see what we saw in the phase one trial? It's really about how do we enable this to become uh, a commercially viable solution. Uh, I think that's where we put an enormous amount of effort behind, and that's where you also need to add a lot of resources behind. And that's, that's part of what we have done here at Blue Rock, is just prioritize the effort around BIM the Neprocell um, to, to the full extent. Um, that, that comes with a lot of resources to go behind that. And I think that's where I see the, the future for the field as well. You asked earlier about you know, what does this do to the field. I think it now enables us to think beyond these phase one trials. We now really need to think about how do we make this a therapy? There's so many questions. We've seen it. You know, we, we have, we're fortunate enough to have some lessons from the CAR T-cell field now. When we think about how to manufacture these at scale, how to bring them to all the patients, how to ship them, uh, how to make them affordable, right? All these questions are now worth being answered um, because before it was a dream. And now we have the reality of the data set that we have, and that allows us uh, to move forward and think about the next steps. Great time to be alive. Dr. Tabak. Uh, to you now, talk, talk about the patient, best case for the patient. I mean, I know it's a watershed already, right? Because the fetal grafts, like it was about a year that you started to see a little bit of dyskinesia. Yeah. I mean, I'm wrong on that, but I feel like the, I don't want to say anything out of the woods, um, but it's encouraging as yes. we've been saying over and over. So for you, best case for the patient, what are we thinking about? Like, I know full recovery seems like a miracle, but do you think that's in, in the, that's in the constellation of possibilities? Yes, certainly in the constellation of possibilities. Um, I think these are, you know, baby steps, monument, monumental as they may be. They are early steps. I think best case scenario is that the patient will 
benefit from improvement in their symptoms, particularly their motor symptoms, that their longevity with good quality of life will be longer. Uh, but we are already thinking how we can approach this really complex disease that is not only motor, that eventually after a while can uh, impact the entire brain, um, you know, diminish cognition, how we can actually provide an even more comprehensive um, solution for this disease. Uh, but, you know, uh, unfortunately and fortunately, you have to go step by step. This takes a long time to mature, and it's important for the field to keep an eye on that, to, to you know, remain positive, but also be very pragmatic that these, uh, these therapies have incredible promise. And here we are on, you know, having already one step under our belt, so to say, in the right direction. But there's a lot more we can do. And since we know how to do this, we can do it faster, more targeted. Mm -hmm. So I want to, I think we're coming close to the, the time limit here before we get into audience questions. I kind of want to shift gears a little bit because we're talking about the team. I mean, the team is really uh, deserves a lot of the credit for, for bringing us to this point. And, you know, we always talk about in team building, you need to have a diverse group. And I think you achieve that by pulling together all these scientists from different fields and different levels of expertise. Of course, it's obviously critical, but of course you need to have representation from all different types of people in order to instill that creativity. Saw from the Halloween picture parties that Mark was generous enough to share with me that you have a nice camaraderie here at Blue Rock. So uh, the team is critical and you as a woman scientist and neurosurgeon, one in eight practicing neurosurgeons is a woman. So there's a clear disparity. It's a male-dominated field. And I mean, I don't know that you could speak to broader diversity, but what would you say to a, a young female neuroscientist looking to get into the field? And or uh, what do you think needs to change in order to balance that you know, disparity, uh, not just in neurosurgery, but specifically in neurosurgery, but broadly speaking? Yeah, really good question. So I would say to the woman neuroscientist or neurosurgeon to be, go for it. Um, and be very confident that she will succeed. And I would say for those of us, of you, who you know, run labs, run companies, run groups, that you have, you have to have an open mind. And, you, you know, I get very irritated sometimes when people talk the talk about diversity, but actually don't take action about it. It is not that hard. If you want your team to have people of color, you want black people in science, you actually know where the high schools are in Harlem, in the Bronx, go and recruit there. I don't take this business about just talking. Um, and I try to practice what I preach. You have to be pragmatic about it. I think nowadays, uh, to be fair, it's rare to encounter very intentional um, sort of uh, bias. But bias is in our culture. Uh, when, you know, I mean, this is quite cliche. I'm proud to say that in, in the case of our family, that's not the case. But when you ask children to draw a surgeon, often it's a, it's a man, not a woman, but my daughter drew a woman. Thank you. Uh, so, you know, it, it starts very early, and you have to have an open mind, and you have to realize that while we all of us 
strive for excellence. Actually, you need to make diversity part of that excellence. There are institutions that are brilliant at recruiting the best minds to be uh, their scientists, to be in their company. But if you don't incorporate diversity as an actual surrogate and corollary and goes hand in hand with science, you're actually missing out on talent. And so it has to be incorporated in that culture. And as a leader, you have to take steps to ensure lack of bias. People who come from poorer backgrounds or women who have had to have children, well, their CVs will not look very much like the standard white man CV. Not that there is anything wrong with being a white man. Uh, most of us have been mentored and supported and driven forward by brilliant white men scientists, if I would just be explicit. Uh, but, you know, a woman who had to raise two or three children, well, their CV is not going to look the same as the other guy, but she may be incredible. I mean, to be able to multitask, you're already a step ahead. You have to have an open mind. You have to go find talent where you know it is rather than talk about it. Um, and one important thing as we think about stem cell technologies is diversity among patients. I said that at NICEF yesterday, maybe in a bit of blunt terms, but we don't want the, this therapy to be therapy for rich people only. It's very hard and costly to make stem cell therapies, but it is not what we're after to have niche things where you know you come into the stem cell clinic like you go to some spa. It has to be for everybody. And, and everybody is not even your neighborhood, your country, it's planet Earth. And that is a huge challenge, actually. Absolutely. And I think I speak for all of us when I say that having you in a position of visible leadership is so critically important to inspiring that next generation of women neurosurgeons and neuroscientists. So thank you for what you do. And Stefan, even though you're a white male, you're all right too. <laughs> no, I, 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 tough, <laughs> tough act to follow. Uh, tough act to follow. Oh man, yeah. full support. The... You know, I, I think what would stood out, and that's what we live by: is diversity is an asset. Right? It's an asset, and we have to leverage. We have to leverage it. Absolutely. All right, so we are nearing the end of our show, but before we let everybody go, we want to open things up to the audience to ask questions. Actually, before I do that, is there anything that we miss that you want to want us to talk about still before we open it up to everybody else? We should say for, for everybody in the audience and that's going to listen to this uh, later in the show, what an amazing time to be in this field, right? Uh, I think, you know, thank you both for, for having this and bringing this out into the community, the stem cell community, and hopefully beyond. Uh, everybody should hear about what this therapy, what these types of therapies can do. Uh, it's amazing. I think as a trainee, I, I'd be, I'd be uh, ecstatic uh, to listening to these. Um, well, that sounds silly when I say it, but uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, this is an exciting time to be a trainee and, and go in this field and, and develop these therapies. Yeah, we say it all the time. All right, let's open it up. Anybody have some burning questions to ask? Yeah, that was amazing. Thank you very much. Uh, so you touched on Conti and, and how uh, that, that's changing the way we approach cancers and things like that. Uh, I think it's 
there are clearly many factoring issues though in delivering that to a large population. So thinking about this, there are being going from phase one to phase two to phase three to even commercialization. I'll help you get there. I assume there are still massive though roadblocks to get to that level of scale. I just wonder if you could touch on that and like what else is going to be needed to enable you to be able to reach that to, to deliver this to a large population. Yeah, I mean, from our side, um, you know, I like to refer to them as opportunities, not challenges. Um, makes it a lot easier to digest. Um, but the whole ecosystem around these types of th cell therapies is, is not it's not quite there, right? All the automation that people have developed to make antibodies is isn't, you know, thousands of liters of bioreactors. That's not the scale that we're talking about to make millions of cells for transplantation in Parkinson's, right? Uh, the producers of, of the ingredients uh, that make up these uh, these cell therapies uh, need to think about how they can lower their costs and, and make the materials uh, you know, better and, and, and cheaper and, and, and in larger quantities. Uh, that's just to, to make the cells. And then we need to think about um, how we distribute these, uh, how do we ensure stability, how do we make it so easy that we don't need a specialized facility uh, to prepare the cells. Um, we don't, um, I mean, we can, uh, you know, use multi multiple surgical centers uh, to deliver the cell therapies and not have to just rely on individual very specialized centers. Although we, of course, love working with the centers we work with. I agree. I think in, um, one of the challenges is going to be trying to couple manufacturing and delivery devices and making them, sorry, idiot proof. Uh, but that's the key. Um, I am uh, I'm very optimistic about the field being ready to do that. I think we know the challenges, and I think these are engineering problems that can be solved. We just have to prioritize them ahead of time, because we have to always remember that the success of this therapy has very much to do, as we said earlier, with every step. Um, and only one of them has to fail for the therapy to fail, and that's tragic. Can you imagine? failing on account of something technical. Other questions from the audience? Thank you guys so much. Um, so big picture, right, to discovery is like the ones that are happening here get everyone excited. But um, I'm curious what advice you have for the trainees and other researchers like myself um, in the weeds and mechanisms and detail and adventures and from our lab the class. How would we stay excited? Oh, you don't love mechanism? mechanism? <laughs> <laughs> she loves them too much. <laughs> you know, and I have to say, if you ask me if there's something else to say, well, yes, we're all focused now on the cells and how we got them into the patient, but there would have been no cells if there were no people thinking about the mechanism. So in this audience alone, we have Taiwan, Jingwa is not here, but we have some of her team. Those people were absolutely critical to actually making the right cell. We couldn't be where we are today without somebody like you, Kelsey, thinking about mechanism. It's, you know, science is tough. Uh, science is even tougher today where everything is moving fast and requires your attention and the attention span is shorter. Science requires you to tough it out for five, six, maybe longer years to see if your idea is right or wrong and challenges you to be open-minded about whether your hypothesis was the right one or whether you proved it to be null or 
you know. So uh, we need you to be focusing on mechanism. We each have our strengths and, and um, you know, Stefan says, look at it as an opportunity. This is all based on very rigorous science. And very rigorous science thinks of mechanism and asks why and why not. Um, so. Not to mention, I think, Stefan or whomever is uh, thinking about the, the next wave of Blue Rock employees. You want people who are classically trained, I assume. I mean, you don't want people just for their thumbs. You need people who are going to think, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but how do you feel about this next generation? Do you think that the classic training paradigm is still uh, preparing scientists to fit well into industry? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I think if you think about where some of the greatest discoveries over the last couple of years came from, there were basic scientists, uh, you know, uh, like CRISPR therapeutics, like, you know, like or CRISPR enzymes were, that was, some people thought, well, why are you studying this, right? And now we have therapies in the clinic that, uh, that are making difference in the patient's life. So I wouldn't overthink what, what, you study, what you're studying is, is not relevant. You never know until you know what the potential it has. For us as to recruit patients, um, not patients, um, scientists, you know, yeah, we, we like that the basic training is the same, right? Like it's, it's how do I design a good experiment uh, that, with, that has param parameters that I can control to then make a conclusion and move it forward. You, you, you learn that basic principle of how to, to execute a good experiment uh, in, in your PhD and in your scientific training. It doesn't matter if you're studying a mechanism and then later apply it to a biotech company or not. Mm. Keep on with the mechanism. First of all, thank you so much. Absolutely incredible. Very inspiring as you're training as well. Um, my question was, well, my original one was already taken, but I guess kind of building off of the question about commercialization and about you know, how do you actually expand cell therapies to where they are accessible and where this is actually feasible for people? You know, you can't, obviously, in the, in the back of the CDS, you can't make a uh, stem cell data implant in someone's mind. I guess, how do you envision, you know, what are the next steps in terms of making that feasible? Because you mentioned that was a big focus of, you know, what makes Blue Rock unique. And another follow-up question to that is, like you mentioned yourself, you know, we've learned a lot from CAR T cells and, you know, how successful those therapies have been and how far we've gotten in the clinical realm of implementing them. Do you imagine any sort of collaborations where, you know, you might uh, utilize the infrastructure that's being set up for making those treatments accessible? You know, is that is that something you could foresee as a, as a collaboration or do you have some other alternative approaches? You know, how, how is this going to be feasible and to reach, you know, planet Earth as, as you mentioned out here? Yeah, great, great question. Um, you know, obviously that that's on our on our mind a lot. Um, I, I think the the field uh, and the community is, is not quite there, right? There's there's differences between countries. Uh, we have to work with regulators. That's like, uh, you know, that's a it's a huge effort. You have to work in consortia, and it's it's a it moves uh, slowly. Um, I guess this is the term I would use in a, in a, in a recorded uh, webinar. Um, <laughs> but it's important and we participate in those discussions because the regulators, both of the ones we work with, have been in, in, incredibly supportive of what we wanted to do. Uh, but they obviously also protect society from, you know, from, from bad science. So, but we have to work with them to harmonize it. Harmonization between different countries will allow us to more easily bring the same therapy into other, into other countries. Harmonization of 
companies that make shipping containers, delivery devices that are accessible to all companies will allow us to harmonize that, of facilitating how we can bring this to multiple, pa uh, multiple countries and, and more patients uh, therein. Um, so I think that's, we're still, I think everybody's a little bit in their own world, moving this forward, what fits themselves. And everybody, I think, also is trying to, to move towards, towards a common goal. But I think it, it is somewhat of a slow process um, that we're obviously trying to work on really hard. Yes, hard and, and carefully. I really want to underscore that, the rigor and the, the, the need to not get another black eye. You know, I mean, gene therapy, lost years, Geron thing even, with the cysts in the, in the spine. I think, that, I think that was a real black eye, not to mention all the pirate MSC clinics where people are having to enucleate their eyes after getting treatment. So, yeah, being careful, being measured, I think, is... Um, a critical thing. And also, as, as you, you said and described, this is a moonshot, right? So you, you made it to the moon, let's say. Uh, it's going to make everything uh, move faster, I think, for everyone else. You know, the, 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 these intricacies, idiosyncrasies of the surgery that you're figuring out. I mean, this is the toughest. It's the brain. It's everything that I would imagine could never happen. 25 years ago, as I start out by saying, we were counting CFOS, C-June positive cells in brain slices in rats. And a quarter century later, these cells are going into people. I mean, I wouldn't ask for it to happen any faster than that. I think that the, the real key is that it's, it's being done the right way. Um, and again, hats off to, to the whole team for that. Very well done. Uh, anything else? Any other questions? Hi. Uh, thank you, guys. Uh, very simple question. How did you come to name this therapy? Because I do <laughs> I have nothing to do with it. So Stefan has to explain that one. <laughs> yeah, so uh, a fun fact, there's actually uh, an organization, uh, it's INN, and of course I don't remember what the acronym stands for, but it's an international naming uh, convention. Uh, and there's certain rules, uh, that, so as you can imagine, it ends in cell, which implies that the therapeutic uh, active ingredient is a, is a cell. Um, and then there's certain rules about uh, what else, what other uh, you know, pieces of that word you can use. Um, then they suggest which uh, letters you shouldn't use because they may not be available in all alphabets. And then you go through a process of coming up with suggestions. Um, and then they, uh, you know, that you can really suggest many things, like you could put your name in there. Or, so for us, the da part was always the, we also wrote to us DA1 or DA neuron, so that was the D. And, we thought about balance and then through various things that we couldn't say because it was already taken or it meant something else. Um, you, we then ended up with, uh, with a suggestion of bemdanepracel. Uh, one of our clinicians liked that it rolls off easily when the physician prescribed. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry. One important difference he would say, physicians will call it bemda. I uh, see. Yeah. And, um, then there's a process, uh, and, and don't quote me in, uh, on the exact, but there's a period of review where other companies and other people in the world can say, no, that's my name, uh, I can't use that. And then finally you get a letter say like, you can now call this Bemdanepracel. Bemdanepracel, uh, what a yeah. beautiful series of so, syllables. That's <laughs> I think actually Elon Musk named his 13th kid. <laughs> oh boy. Well, I guess that brings us to the end of the show. I'm sad. It's so much fun. Uh, I want to thank again our guests, Dr. Vivian Tabar, Dr. Stefan Irian. Also, thanks to Blue Rock 
for hosting us. Amazing view. Never saw a seaplane in New York before. And uh, Stem Cell Technologies for putting it all together. Thank you all so much. Also in the audience, it really made it special um, to have you here reacting and inspired, I think, like I was by uh, these stories that were shared and all the details I think you want. Um, so give yourselves a round of applause. You guys have been really good. Also, please be sure to check out our website at www.stemcellpodcast.com or your favorite podcast app to find this or any of our reams of great science conversations. You can also reach out to us via email at info at stemcellpodcast.com or via Twitter, now known as X. Elon. At Stem Cell Podcast is the handle. You won't find me on there, but Arun is very prolific. Uh, thanks again, you guys, for listening, and good night. Good night.